Our second Bible reading this morning is John chapter 13, verse 31 through to chapter 14, verse 7. Therefore, when Judas had left, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am still with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I am giving you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you also will be. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it would be a great help to me if you could keep that page within sight so you can follow along easily during the sermon. Before we start, let's pray together for God's help. The writer of Psalm 119 says to God, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Father, as your word is preached this morning, we pray that we would taste its sweetness and recognize its goodness for our lives. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Every US president has to put up with the uncomfortable experience of closing out their time in office as a lame duck. New presidents are elected in early November, but only inaugurated on the 20th of January. That means there's a period of every of over two months when everyone knows the president who is still in office is on the way out. It's a time when that outgoing president 
loses authority and influence. They become what's called a lame duck. And at first glance, that might seem to be the position Jesus is in as he teaches his disciples on the night of the Last Supper. In verse 33, he tells them, Where I am going, you cannot come. Their Lord and Master is leaving them. If their group stays together, someone else will surely have to take over leadership responsibilities. Doesn't that make Jesus a lame duck, like an outgoing president? Can Jesus really hope, after announcing his departure, that what he goes on to teach his disciples will stick? Well, when we look more closely at the passage, we see that Jesus' exit is no ordinary departure. He's leaving the disciples to achieve something for them that will deepen their devotion to him and strengthen their connection to him. Unlike US presidents, Jesus' departure will increase his authority over his people, those first disciples and us today. For the rest of this sermon, we're going to look first at the explanation Jesus gives for his departure before moving on to the expectations he has for his people while he's away. Let's begin with Jesus' exiting explanation, his exiting explanation. Jesus tells the disciples that something magnificent is about to happen. In verse 31, he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. John reminds us at the start of verse 31 that Judas has just left. And it's no coincidence that Jesus chooses that very moment to speak about being glorified. Judas's betrayal is the first of the stepping stones that will lead to the death of Jesus on the following day. And Jesus will gain glory through his death on the cross. That might sound strange to you if you're listening today as someone who's not yet following Jesus. By the way, thank you very much for listening, if that's you. I can see why you might find it strange for Jesus to be glorified through the cross, through crucifixion. But it works like this. Jesus' death glorifies him as the loving saviour who offers forgiveness to us at the cost of his own life. Jesus' death was sacrificial. He died in our place, punished by God the Father, that we ourselves might no longer face punishment for our sin. What a glorious salvation. What a glorious saviour. One Bible commentator puts it like this, in giving his life for sinful humans, the glory of Jesus' gracious character was most clearly seen. End quote. Now, when Jesus speaks about his glorification, he's speaking about more than his death alone. He's also speaking about his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. In fact, it's true to say that Jesus' death wouldn't have saved a single person if he hadn't also risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. We can sum up all that we've been thinking about so far by saying that Jesus 
is more glorious because of his departure than he would have been if he had never left. Jesus is more glorious because of his departure than he would have been if he had never left. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus says those words in verse 33 because as the only son of God, he's the only one who can die in the place of sinners. Peter says in verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. But if Peter had tried to do that, he wouldn't have achieved anything. He would have been just another name on the crucifixion lists of the Roman Empire. Peter was an ordinary man, guilty of wrongdoing, just like you and me. Later that evening, he will deny three times that he's ever known Jesus. As Jesus predicts in advance in verse 38. But Jesus was different. He was not just a man. He was also God. In the final verse of the passage, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. That's a claim to divinity. Jesus is saying, if you had known me, you would have known God. He was God made man with all the moral purity of God himself. And so when he laid down his life for others, it was spiritually meaningful. His blood was precious in the sight of his father. It brought about atonement for the sin of others. That's why Jesus says those famous words in John 14 verse 6 towards the end of today's passage. I am the way and the truth and the life. He's the way, offering salvation to all who trust in him. He's the truth, providing revelation of God's plan. And he's also the life. Through his resurrection, we too can rise and live forever. But perhaps there's another way, another route to salvation. Perhaps there's another truth, an alternative source of revelation. Perhaps there's another life, a different method for attaining resurrection. Jesus puts a stop to all of those perhapses in the second half of verse 6, where he says, No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm sure you've heard people speak of God being at the top of a mountain with all the different religions providing different pathways up that mountain to the same God. Christianity does not go along with that claim. What's more, most of the world's other religions don't go along with that claim either. When the Muslim soccer player Mo Salah posted a photo on social media showing him and his family sitting by their Christmas tree, many Muslims criticised him. One Muslim leader left this comment beneath Mo Salah's post. You celebrate a day in which they claim that God gives birth to the likes of us, a day when God is insulted. That comment reflects the orthodox Muslim view of Christianity. 
Islam teaches that Christianity is not a legitimate route up the mountain to God. Instead, Christianity is blasphemous in the eyes of Islam. So when people argue that many religious roads lead up the mountain to the same God, they're saying, we're right about this, and Christianity and Islam are wrong, along with almost all the other religions of the world. The view that many different roads lead up the mountain to God sounds like it's saying, all of you are right, but really it's saying, all of you are wrong. It's a truth claim in competition with the truth claims of Christianity and Islam and other religions. These competing truth claims can only be settled by revelation from God, and that is what Jesus gives us. His offer of salvation rests on his claim that he brings revelation, and that claim rests in turn on his resurrection from the dead. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life because I believe he rose from the dead. The Old Testament prophets said the promised Redeemer would rise from the dead. And the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection persuades me that he fulfilled those prophecies. He is the way because he is the truth. And he is the truth because he is the life. If you're someone who hasn't yet received Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, come to him today. Make him your way, your truth, and your life. Because he is those things. Don't reject him any longer. Receive him for who he is. It's time for us to move on from Jesus' exiting explanation to his exiting expectations. In this passage, Jesus sets out two expectations for his disciples for the coming period when he'll be physically absent from them. There are many commands in the New Testament, and they're all given to show God's saved people how to live. They all carry weight. But the two commands in this passage surely have special weightiness, particular significance because of the time when they're given. At the moment when Jesus announces his imminent departure, he tells his people there are two things we need to be sure to do in his absence. The first is to love one another, and the second is to trust in him. Putting it slightly differently, we can say Jesus' expectations are first, love, and second, peace. We'll look at each in turn, and that will take us through to the end of the sermon. Let's start then with love. Please look down with me to verse 34. Jesus says, I am giving you a new commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you that you also love one another. It's easy to stumble over the last part of that verse because Jesus doesn't say quite what we think he's going to say. We think he's going to say, just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. In other words, you should love one another in the same kind of way 
that I have loved you. He does say that in a different verse in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 12. But here in verse 34 of our passage today, Jesus makes a different point. The translation we're using brings out something that is there in the original language. In the last part of verse 34, Jesus says, Just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Meaning, so that you also love one another. Jesus loved us so that we would love one another. He saw a divided world, a suspicious, conflict-ridden world, and he lovingly came down in order that we might love one another. It wasn't the only purpose Jesus had, but it is one of the reasons why he loved us. He wanted us to love one another. The Bible commentator Leon Morris says that in verse 34, Christ's love is the, quote, ground of ours, meaning the foundation for our love, the basis for our love. Take away Christ's love, and we have no ground for loving one another. As it says in 1 John chapter 4, a chapter about Christians loving one another, we love because he first loved us. The point here is that without Jesus, I have no reason to love you. I'm sorry if that sounds unfriendly, but it's simply realistic. In a world without Christ, you and I would be two collections of atoms competing for the world's limited resources. Christ came down from heaven for our sake so that we would have a firm foundation for loving one another. He loved us so that we would love one another. Now something similar happens in verse 35. Jesus says in verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We've seen that Christ's love created the necessary conditions for our love. And in a similar way, our love will create favorable conditions for outsiders to discover Jesus and join our loving community of faith in him. Ray Ortland is a Christian leader in Nashville who has thought a lot about the importance of Christians loving one another. He talks about the need for a gospel culture, a good news culture, as well as just gospel doctrine or teaching. Here's a quote from Ray Ortland: If we allow the gospel to sweeten the flavour of our churches by the grace of Jesus, the doctrine starts shining more gloriously than ever before. A gospel culture is itself an argument for the doctrine. End quote. I think I'll read that again. If we allow the gospel to sweeten the flavor of our churches by the grace of Jesus, the doctrine starts shining more gloriously than ever. A gospel culture is itself an argument for the doctrine. It's not hard to find case studies proving Ray's point. Testimonies where people say that one of the things attracting them to Jesus, to the Christian faith, was the love 
of Christians for one another. Here's an example. This is the testimony of a pastor named Jason Helopoulos. As a freshman college student and self-declared atheist, he says, I attended a campus Christian fellowship to fulfill a promise to a Christian friend. I only had the intention to go once. It was merely duty and upholding my word, nothing more. I went begrudgingly, but I went. My life was never the same. I walked into a room full of Christians and was struck by what I observed. Here was a diverse group. They were from every walk of life. I remember scanning the room and labelling people in my mind. There is a jock, over there is a geek, and walking in the door is a boy scout. But what struck me was that they were together. They weren't just together in the same room, they were together in every sense of the word. They were actually talking with each other and genuinely seemed happy to be together. There didn't seem to be division. Even in my atheist mind, I knew what I was seeing. They loved one another. I had no categories for this, so I kept returning to find out why they had love like this for one another. Over the course of a few months, I found the answer, or more accurately stated, the answer found me. The testimony of Jason Helopoulos. Love is the first of Jesus' two exiting expectations. Let's now turn to the second, peace. Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 14, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus seems to think, that just by trusting in God the Father and God the Son, you and I can have untroubled hearts. Surely he can't be serious, can he? I mean, doesn't he know that your job is up for review this summer and if your position is terminated, your career will be finished and you won't be able to pay your rent? Doesn't he know that your relative has just received a stage 4 cancer diagnosis? Doesn't he know that your Christian friend who's walked alongside you in the Christian life, is going through a crisis of faith and doesn't believe in God anymore? Doesn't Jesus know about pandemics that never seem to end? How in the world can Jesus say, do not let your heart be troubled? Jesus certainly does know about the problems we face. He knows how small we feel. In a challenging and sometimes threatening world, he calls his people little children there at the start of verse 33. But we're little children holding on to a great promise. Please look down to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 14. In my father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. Because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you also will be. In those verses, Jesus uses an illustration that little children can easily understand. He speaks of his departure as if he were a father 
traveling to a foreign city to get things ready for his family before going back to collect them. Of course, behind that simple homespun illustration in verses 2 and 3, we need to see the horror of the cross, the silence of the tomb, the wonder of the resurrection, and the majesty of the ascension. All of those things are what Jesus means by going there to prepare a place for you. But now that those things have happened, we wait as God works out his purposes in human history and we can wait in peace. Jesus has prepared a place for us. All that remains is for him to return to take us to himself. Trusting in Jesus means holding on to his promise to do that. And since he will keep his promise, we should not let our heart be troubled. We can live in peace. The trials we face in this world won't disrupt God's sovereign plan. And he promises us the strength we need to face those trials. I can do everything through him who gives me strength, Paul says in Philippians 4.13. What we need to grasp firmly is that since Jesus has gone ahead of us and will return to get us, all the really important things have been settled. Our eternal future is secure. In light of that, we can enjoy peace. Love and peace. Those are the expectations Jesus leaves his people with. And how good it is that Jesus expects us to enjoy those good things while he is physically away from us. It seems to me that here at Good Shepherd Anglican Church, we do have the love for one another that Jesus expects us to have. So far as I can tell, Love isn't lacking among the people of Good Shepherd. In five years, it's never been lacking. That's a wonderful thing that can't be taken for granted, and I praise God for it. But I'm not sure the same can be said when it comes to peace. And here I'm very much preaching to myself as well as to you. One way to put it would be to say that there is more peace available from God than we here at Good Shepherd typically seem to experience. Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. But I think we do often allow our heart to be troubled. That's not meant as criticism, it's actually meant as optimism. There's more peace available from God than we typically experience. Let's enter into it. Esther Edwards Burr was the daughter of the famous 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards. In 1756, she traveled with her six-month-old baby to visit her parents in Stockbridge in western Massachusetts. At that time, the colonies were in the middle of a seven-year war against French forces who were allied with some Native American tribes. Stockbridge was a frontier town, vulnerable to attack. And soon after Esther arrived, 
They heard that the French had won a victory to the west of the town. It seemed possible that the native tribes, allied with the French, could attack Stockbridge at any time. I'll read some quotes from the journal of Esther Edwards Burr, showing how she was able to gain peace through faith in God. I think these quotes will help us. They're from her entries for September 1756. And I'll use Esther's language, even though we wouldn't now refer to Native Americans in the same way she does. Thursday and Friday, the second through the third, almost overcome with fear. Some thought they heard the enemy last night. Oh, how distressing to live in fear every moment. Wednesday the 8th. This place is in a very defenseless condition, and this is a place that the enemy can easily get at, and if they do, we can't defend ourselves. Ten Indians might with all ease destroy us entirely. There has been a number seen at about 30 miles distance from this place. Then that Sunday and Monday, Esther's attitude changes completely. She fixes her eyes on God and his sure purposes. Here's what she says. At night, felt calmed with the thought that God would be glorified and the ever-blessed God will lose none of his glory. If the Indians get me, they get me. That is all I can say. If the Indians get me, they get me. That is all I can say. That's what it looks like to do as Jesus says, In chapter 14, verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. God the Father and God the Son can be trusted. They know the end from the beginning. Nothing takes them by surprise. Whatever your worst fear might be, Jesus wants his followers to say with Esther Edwards, if it gets me, it gets me. We can have that untroubled heart because God the Father and God the Son can be trusted. Jesus will keep his promise in verse 3. I am coming again and will take you to myself. If your worst fear about your circumstances in this life becomes reality, if it gets you, whatever it might be, it won't stop Jesus keeping his promise. I am coming again and will take you to myself. We know the Saviour who makes that promise to us. We know him. We know he won't let us down. And so even in his absence, we can enjoy his peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for going away to prepare a place for us in your Father's presence. We thank you that you went away via the cross. While we wait for you to come again, we pray that you would fill our hearts with your peace. We pray too that you would keep replenishing our love for one another. Amen.